Well, what happened on Tuesday? Does anyone really know? Does anybody really know what time it is? <laughs> That's the Chicago intro to today's edition of Deep Background. Greetings. Uh, you're on Deep Background, uh, back on audio after some video experiments earlier in the week. You're on Deep Background, the podcast uh, for November 5th, 2020, the first one after the election. I'm Dave Helling with the Star's editorial board. Uh, joining us today are two great colleagues, uh, Colleen McCain-Nelson, my boss at the Star and the editor of the editorial page and, and uh, in charge of opinion for McClatchy. Great to have her and Jonathan Shorman the lead political reporter for the Kansas City Star on the podcast today. And of course, as always, Derek Donovan, my colleague uh, and co-host. Well, let me start, uh, uh, Colleen, with you. And I, let's go to the 35,000 foot level where I think we all enjoy being, at least for a little uh, part of uh, post-election analysis. And that is this. Let me make, make this observation and you tell me what you think we're hearing. Uh, it was clearly a night broadly for Republicans in our area and, and maybe across the nation. The idea that Democrats would sweep into the Senate uh, seems to have gone by the wayside. They lost House seats. Um, you know, Republicans won by double-digit margins in our region. And yet Joe Biden is going to have more votes than anyone in American history. How in the hell does that happen? <laughs> That, that's a great question. And, and uh, I think President Trump uh, has not acknowledged that that actually happened yet. Uh, that <laughs> there, there's still a, a real question in his mind. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, at the 35,000 foot level, I think more than anything, we learned that our country is completely divided. And, you know, leading up to this election, there was a lot of thinking and a lot of polling that suggested Perhaps there was buyer's remorse after 2016 and that there were all these um, voters who took a flyer on, on Trump and, and now would come, come back to, uh, to Biden um, and that really we were not necessarily that divided and there would be a blue wave and, and none of that came true. Um, so what we saw was in the end really just kind of the status quo, both nationally and also locally. Um, we saw nationally that we're practically a 50-50 country in, in terms of division and locally, despite all of the, the ruminations about perhaps Kansas being a little bit swingy, perhaps Democrats finally winning a Senate race in Kansas, perhaps Democrats being competitive statewide in Missouri, none of that happened. And we went back to um, practically 2016 results and, and Trump won big in both Kansas and Missouri. He lost a, a little bit of ground in each state, but um, things look a whole lot like 2016 all over again. Yeah, we, are, we should point out that it looks like Trump will have lost maybe two or three points from his margin of 2016 in Kansas and Missouri, not the eight to 10 points that I think a lot of us expected to happen. Well, Jonathan, what's your verdict? What did you think we saw on uh, on uh, Tuesday? I think, by the way, Colleen is exactly right that the, the, that the idea that we are now hyper divided seems very clear to me Get, you know finding our way out of that morass is is not clear to me at all maybe maybe you could reflect on that for us too yeah i i kind of suspect that um to take again the thirty-five thousand foot view that uh there might have been a, a bit of an element where democrats were kind of a victim of their own expectations where we heard for for months and months about you know, the so-called blue wave, um, 
you know, late into the campaign, there were kind of whispers of a, of a potential just kind of Biden wipeout uh, nationally. And, and obviously, I think I think to a, a degree, perhaps even in Kansas, perhaps in some of these other red states, I, I do think there are voters out there that uh, if they see kind of this national expectation, hey, Biden's going to be president, uh, the Senate's going to be controlled by Democrats, you know, uh, they're going to pass this and that policy easily. Um, that perhaps there is a segment of, of voters out there that say, well, in that case, uh, maybe I need to vote for, make sure I vote for a Republican for, for Senate, or I need to make sure uh, I send a Republican to uh, the state legislature where they can kind of counteract some of what's coming do, out of do you think? Yeah, Jonathan, do you think that went on? I mean, because I was always surprised leading up to the election that more Republicans weren't making that case that, hey, I need to win because Joe Biden is going to be president and we need to be a check on him. But you didn't see a lot of that, at least from the parts of the campaign that I paid attention to. Uh, and yet you're, you're suggesting that m many people may have made that calculation on their own. I think I think there was some uh, suggestive uh, messaging from Marshall late on that, uh, you know, some language about uh, let's make sure uh, need to be a check on Biden's judges and that kind of thing. Um, but I, I don't think the Republican candidates uh, put out a lot of messaging like that just because there there is such a, a sense of we we can't be critical of the president. We can't, um, you know, this is Trump's party. We can't be seen uh, necessarily to uh, to kind of be uh, writing him off or anything like that. I want to stay at the high level for one more question, and then we'll look at Kansas and Missouri. And Colleen, I'll go to you. Um, you, you know, traditionally after the election of a president, uh, even even if the if the White House changes party you, parties, you do get a a little bit of a break, a honeymoon. Uh, everybody says the right thing. Uh, uh, you know, pr the president elect starts to assemble a cabinet, that type of thing. It, it looks like we're in for none of that this time. I mean, it, you know, it, it, the president one assumes President Trump, if he loses in the Electoral College as the results uh, are finalized, you really get the sense that he's not gonna go quietly. D what is that, and already you're seeing stories, by the way, that Mitch McConnell isn't going to approve any liberal cabinet members. I mean, it, it, the idea of sort of a peaceful, calm transition, if a transition indeed is called for, seems to be going out the window. I think that's absolutely right, and, and there will be no honeymoon. There won't be a month of a honeymoon period. There won't be a week. There won't even be a day of a honeymoon. And, and, and COVID, COVID, by the way, makes that worse, doesn't it? Absolutely, and and ultimately, uh, President Trump sense, sets the tone on that. I mean, he he could change that in in an instant. And so, obviously, you know, we're still counting votes. We need to see every vote counted. We need to see the final results. And so, I'm I'm not making any assumptions there. But if trends continue and um, and what looks apparent is is that Biden will likely be declared the winner within the next day or two. If he reaches 270, I mean, Trump, of course, has the option of accepting the results and setting a tone for a peaceful transition. But at this point, he is indicating through both action and incessant tweets that he's going to fight this to the death. And he is going to file no end of lawsuits. He will file a lawsuit in every single state. He will demand recounts. And I mean, obviously, that's been his MO throughout his business career is, I mean, he, he has powered through life by filing lawsuits and, and contesting
getting results that he doesn't like. And so there's no indication that he will um, go quietly here. I don't think any of us knows exactly what that's going to look like um, beyond fighting in the courts. Ultimately, he will. Uh, there will be an end to uh, the legal options. I don't know what happens after that. Um, but as, as you note, um, even if you know, Trump eventually leaves, Biden uh, arrives, it's going to be a divided government. And, you know, Democrats really hope that they'd be walking into a situation where, um, at least in the short term, they could get some things done and control the House and the Senate. Um, Senate, we're still counting votes. We don't have all the results, but, um, and we could be headed to to Senate runoffs in Georgia, which is a bit of a wild card. But if Mitch McConnell is, in fact, the majority leader, he, he can conceivably could stop progress in a lot of different ways for Democrats. So you could have a weird situation where Democrats have the White House, the House, and a really narrow margin in the Senate and still not be able to get anything done. Yeah, although it could be, in some ways, John, uh, an advantage for uh, a President Biden if the Republicans hold the Senate and it enables him to sort of abandon court packing and adding Puerto Rico and DC and all of some of these more aggressive asks from the liberal wing of his party, because that'll be of course impossible if Republicans still maintain control of the Senate. And in fact, getting rid of the filibuster is probably off the table too at that point. So there may be a, a, a bit of a lining uh, for for President-elect Biden, if that turns out to be the case. Do you think that the calmer voices in the Republican Party, uh, people like Roy Blunt maybe, Pat Roberts who's leaving, Jerry Moran, some of the sort of the middle-level Republicans can be helpful in helping the president understand the need for a better transition than one we may be looking at? Because they don't have to fear him anymore, Donald Trump. I think that that's certainly possible. At the same time, I would caution you that looking at the, the results of the presidential election nationwide, uh, it's very clear that there is certainly a base uh, of Trumpist support of kind of support for what President Trump stands for. Even if he loses this election, um, he will have lost it probably a lot narrow, more narrowly than some Dem- Democrats certainly hope for. Um, and so I, I don't think this election was not quite the repudiation of That's Donald it. Trump potentially that, that a lot of people hope for. So I think you'll still have Republicans uh, maybe kind of a skirting around him uh, to an extent, maybe uh, a little bit fearful of criticizing him for fear of uh, kind of getting on the wrong side of, of his base. All right, great. Let's talk a little bit about Missouri, then we'll take a break and finish up with what happened in Kansas. Colleen, I'll go to you first. I don't think we were surprised, were we, that Nicole Galloway lost, but we're stunned by the margin. I mean, she, it wasn't even close. The statewide Republicans just swept those races without, without uh, any sweat whatsoever. I mean, it, 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 the transformation of Missouri into a, and of course they, the Republicans maintain super majorities in both branches of the legislature. Uh, there's just not a lot of sunshine for Democrats in Missouri. 
It was a dark day for Democrats in, in Missouri, and, and certainly I didn't hear any Democrats uh, realistically projecting that Nicole Galloway would win, but they thought it would be close, and um, and there was polling suggesting that she was making up some ground, and, and certainly um, there have been concerns about Parson's response to the pandemic, and, um, you know, and, and he owns that. Uh, this has kind of been his first test, real test as governor, and with cases surging, with the numbers not looking good, there was some thinking that perhaps he would pay a little bit of a political price for that. He didn't, not only did he win by 17 points, he got more votes than Donald Trump in Missouri. And so, um, I mean, it was it was a mandate for Parson. It, it wasn't even close. Um, every other statewide uh, Republican on the ballot won by at least 20 points. Um, so, and, and they, Republicans maintained super majorities in both the House and, and the Senate. And so um, I don't see any silver lining there for Missouri Democrats. I think they have some soul searching to do about where they go from here. Yeah. And it really, John, was an endorsement of Parson, wasn't it? I mean, Galloway was a good candidate and energetic and, you know, had plenty of money. I mean, it isn't a, a, a sense that, uh, you know, he beat a tomato can. I mean, he, 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 he beat an, you know, a well-financed good candidate, which means that the voters broadly endorsed his approach to COVID, which means that statewide mandates and other things are less likely maybe than they ever were. Yeah, I think certainly uh, this was a competitive race from from the standpoint of you had two uh, very competent uh, candidates and campaigns uh, kind of uh, going at it. Um, uh, But yeah, you're right. I think uh, Far from being a political liability, the, the case could be made that that Parsons' uh, approach to COVID was actually a political positive for him. That uh, it really was the case that in in uh, wide areas of of rural Missouri, that there really is pretty very little support for any kind of mask mandate, or at least uh, no support for a state for someone in Jefferson City to tell you. Uh, what to do, that a sense that these decisions should be made by your your local officials. And and that's true even, John, isn't it, as COVID cases go up in rural areas? I mean, I think there was an expectation that as the COVID crisis deepened in this last six to eight weeks, that that might erode some of the support for Parsons' approach. The opposite seems to have happened. Because clearly, Nicole Galloway made COVID her central issue. Yeah, and I I think almost to per, perhaps the degree where it kind of became a gateway issue where uh, if you if you weren't with Galloway on COVID, but but maybe would be otherwise inclined potentially to vote for her or, or, or you were with Parson on COVID, but didn't really like how he had approached the office otherwise, um, it maybe prevented some voters from, from considering Galloway who otherwise might have voted for her just because uh, they maybe perhaps didn't like that approach. All right. Let's take a break here. Let, let, before we take a break, quickly, uh, John, you and then Colleen, I'm in a three past. Right. That, that's another signal, isn't it? A, a, a beacon uh, that the state is more conservative than we know. A- and puzzling, too. <laughs> right. I think uh, I don't want to overinterpret Amendment 3. I think it was a genuinely just for for your voter at home, it was genuinely confusing to figure out, well, what the heck does this actually do? Right. Um, And do uh, I need to vote yes or no? That was the other thing. And it's it's a prime example of the wording on how it was on the ballot. It had the the contributions at the top and extremely opaque language about how the 
uh, rest of it was going to be carried out. And so I, I, I talked to a lot of very informed, smart voters who could not figure out what it meant. Yeah, I think that's true, although when Clean Missouri originally passed, the order was very similar to that. Colleen, what do you think Amendment 3 told us about Missouri? Well, I, I agree with John that there was a lot of confusion about this, um, certainly. Um, but at the end of the day, Carson was in favor of a yes. The Republicans who were running were in favor of a yes. And so if you were confused and you're a Republican, probably the default position is uh, to vote with, you know, the way that Republicans are suggesting. And, and so but that was that was I would argue the biggest surprise in, yeah. in Missouri on on Tuesday because the the no campaign was very organized and very and very um, made a very strong argument for their case. Yeah. All right, great. Let's take a break. We'll look at the Kansas side of the equation when we come back. You're on deep background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at The Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com slash background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to The Star for $1.99 total. That's right. You get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So go grab your computer or mobile device and head to KansasCity.com background. And hey, thanks for listening. Okay, back on Deep Background now. Uh, Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board, Eric Donovan, my co-host, and then John Shorman and Colleen McCain-Nelson of the Star talking about the results. Well, let's go to the Kansas side, and maybe, John, I can st start with you. Uh, you know, Barb Bollier had money. Uh, you know, she had a message. She had uh, everything that a Democrat could possibly hope for in Kansas, and she was uh, crushed. What happened there? Well, I, I think what happened is kind of a, a bit of history taking over. Um, you know, certainly uh, it's kind of almost weird that we're here talking about this race as if it's almost surprising that she lost, given that, uh, you know, Democrats have held both, or Republicans rather, have held both of the Kansas Senate seats for uh, the better part of a, a century. It would have been just absolutely extraordinary if she had won. Um, but I think... Look, she ran a very competitive campaign, probably the most competitive uh, Democratic campaign for that seat uh, in in decades. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's a sense that uh, uh, Democrats went kind of gave it gave it their best effort, and in the end, uh, this for whatever reason, whether it was because voters were splitting their tickets or or uh, because they're People just wanted to kind of go back ultimately to the comfort of, of voting for, for the Republican for Senate like it's always been. Uh, they came up short. But, but certainly, uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like um, uh, this was uh, necessarily a failed effort. I think you could argue that it still potentially had down-ballot positives for, uh, for uh, Democrats in Kansas. Colleen, you know this as my editor. I wrote a column some time ago saying, in essence, Barb Boyer had no chance. And then I wrote a column that said, no, she's got a great chance, <laughs> which, you know, is the columnist's art to cover both sides of any given issue. 
Um, but it seems now in retrospect, and I think what John is saying is that the first column was closer to the truth, that, that Barb Boyer, like any Democrat uh, in Kansas, particularly in Senate races, just faces hurdles that are too high, no matter how much money you have, how much, how well known you are. You know, she was a Republican at one time, so it's not like she was a raging, uh, you know, democratic socialist or whatever, and yet she fell double digits short. What does that say about Kansas? And doesn't that mean that finding a Democrat to ever run for the Senate again, you know, certainly within the next generation is going to be impossible? Who would want to undertake that kind of effort when you're almost certainly doomed to failure? Right. I think the Democratic Party is probably asking themselves that question yeah. today. Um, that's going to be tough to answer. And, and you're right. Um, she had so much money. But I think we saw in the Kansas Senate race and a whole bunch of Senate races across the country that um, millions and millions of dollars won't change the essential makeup of the state. And, you know, you saw uh, Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. You saw Amy McGrath in Kentucky and Barb Bollier in, in Kansas, you know, raising record-setting amounts of money, but that doesn't change the number of Republicans in the state, and it, it didn't convince enough of them to cross over. I think Bollier ran a strong campaign, um, but it, it was not a perfect campaign, and she certainly was hampered by our current situation, by the pandemic. She didn't start this race, um, even as a household name in Johnson County, which is where uh, she's a state senator. Um, she certainly uh, had no name recognition across most of the rest of the state. She didn't have the option of really campaigning in person very much, and that made it very tough. She couldn't really make any inroads um, in other parts of the state very easily, and and, you know, I said throughout the race that Wichita would be um, crucial to her, that she really needed to run up um, some votes in Wichita. Um, she didn't manage to make that happen. And, and there was a debate on hosted by a Wichita TV station where she stumbled badly. Um, she lost her train of thought multiple times. At one point said, I'm blanking. And um, so in a pandemic campaign, you don't have a lot of opportunities. And she didn't manage to seize upon the, the few that were there. And, you know, you brought up. You brought up, you know, you brought up McGrath and Harrison and Ballier. This election was just the perfect example of all the outside money in the world doesn't make any difference in those races. And you were just throwing those dollars away. And also this Kansas race was interesting in that neither Ballier nor Marshall is really a household name. Uh, Chris Kobach had a much higher profile than Roger Marshall did. And there's a, a presumption along among a lot of Kansans, I believe that Roger Marshall is a very moderate middle of the road Republican, which is not the truth whatsoever. He's very close to Kobach in most things, but people just don't know him even as being a congressman. He, he simply doesn't have that type of character recognition. Yeah, and Colleen, let me start with you and then go to John. We've all written about and noticed and paid attention to the way that Johnson County and the third district broadly, but Johnson County is turning more democratic. And that certainly appeared to be kind of the case this time. But I think we may have missed how Republican Wichita is becoming. Uh, you know, it used to be when I was a young pup reporter that uh, the congressman, Dan Glickman, was a Democrat. It was a labor-related uh, uh, voting block in Wichita. Democrats could kind of count on Wichita and Wyandotte County. And then if you could get Johnson County, that was the coalition you'd try to put together. And yet Boye lost in Sedgwick County. Uh, they've got Ron Estes, who is a conservative Republican. They haven't elected a Democrat to that seat in some time. Uh, you know, Wichita is just much more conservative than it was maybe 20 or 25 years ago in a way that Johnson County has gone to the left. Do you think that's right? 
I think that's right. And, and I think that's a really interesting takeaway from Tuesday and, and you know, just digging into the numbers and looking at the map. Um, I, I think that's important to remember uh, for, <laughs> for Kansas Democrats going forward. And you mentioned Ron Estes. I mean, he, he won in a huge landslide that wasn't even a competitive race. And, um, and so uh, if, if Democrats can't um, be competitive in Sedgwick County, they probably can't win statewide in Kansas. And I think it really underscored what a Blue Island, Johnson and Wyandotte County are at this point. Um, they're just there just aren't other counties moving in that direction. And uh, as, as um, uh, you know, and, and Johnson County is a, a purple island and Wyandotte is, is blue, of, of course. But, um, but yeah, there just aren't Democratic votes to be found elsewhere in Kansas at this right. point. Right. And, and I think, John, the, one of the reasons I think it's fascinating is Sedgwick County and Johnson County may represent a more permanent shift in which Democrats become more popular in sort of professional white collar communities like a place like Johnson County, and yet lose their edge in more blue collar uh, union communities like Sedgwick County, where they used to be able to count on votes. It seems like those ships are passing in our elections in Kansas. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I think certainly if you look at Johnson County on Tuesday night, um, look, it was not for Democrats in the state house. It was not a great night for them, but uh, it would have been a lot worse if they had not made, uh, still made some modest gains in Johnson County. Um, and so, uh, you know, we picked up, a, I think, a, a Senate seat, a couple House seats uh, in the county for, for Democrats. Um, and that is uh, probably going to continue in, in some shape or form or fashion. Um, it probably wasn't as much as uh, Democrats, well, I know it was not as, as much as Democrats had hoped for, but even in, in an overall bad night for them uh, statewide, uh, they still managed to kind of cement and further expand uh, in the Johnson County. So that's a good sign for them. All right, Colleen, let's take a look quickly in the last four or five minutes of what lies ahead in Kansas first. I mean, uh, 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 Laura Kelly is on the ballot uh, in two years. She's also looking at COVID. She has divided government. She's got a budget problem. She's got, you know, it's like the scene in Airplane where they're all lining up with different implements, to, you know, to, to go after someone. I mean, it does seem like her challenges are going to be enormous over the next two years. And she doesn't have uh, veto-proof majorities in either house. Um, that's a that's a grim list that you laid out there that, that Laura Kelly is facing. And, um, you know, she comes into the next legislative session um, in the midst of a pandemic, and as you say, with um, with no chance to um, even veto Republicans, um, uh, what she considers bad ideas, um, because they have veto-proof majorities, they can override her. Um, the supermajority uh, result uh, for Republicans is really bad news for Laura Kelly. Um, I think, you know, Democrats were hoping that she would get a little bit of wiggle room, a little bit of leverage, as, as John has, has written about. And it's hard to see what she might be able to accomplish in, in these next two years. And, and uh, her first two years, um, I'm not sure that she really got a signature win or a, a huge 
a, a huge accomplishment for her to run on. And so um, she comes back and, and is going to face Republicans in the legislature trying to take away her uh, emergency powers, potentially really limit her ability to navigate with any autonomy uh, during this pandemic. And so um, that's that's a stark reality. And she's going to have to do a lot of hard work to, to try to find some compromises for with Republicans, question is whether they're going to be willing to work with her at all. Right, and John, redistricting. I mean, she can, you know, they can override her vetoes of maps, both at the congressional level and the state legislative re- level. That That's a huge uh, problem for Democrats. I mean, they, theoretically, Sharice Davids is going to be nervous going into redistricting. She's going to be nervous in 2022 anyway, because if it is President Biden, the first midterm after the new president typically is a challenge. Uh, it's hard to find rays of sunshine for Democrats in Kansas either, right? Right. Well, yeah. And uh, remember, um, well, I guess Kelly, Kelly has called for a, a nonpartisan redistricting commission. That That is simply not, not going to happen uh, with, with Republicans in charge. Um, but I, I think at this point, uh, I guess for Democrats, their their possible best path here is is almost a repeat of of what happened last time a decade ago, which is uh, there was effectively stalemate over over map drawing, and uh, a federal court ended up getting involved. And but that was that was because they didn't have super majorities, and so a right. veto could stick. Yeah. But in this case, she can veto a map, they can override, and there's no, in us, you can find some civil rights violation. It's going to yeah. be tougher. Well, it, it is tougher. I, I guess the, the one silver lining uh, is just the, the difficulty in corralling uh, a, a House Republican majority of, of 84, or 85, or 87 members. Uh, it is very difficult, especially when you're looking at these maps. You know, there are doubtless going to be Republicans who are going to be uh, unhappy with whatever map is drawn for, for their own personal reasons. I think Democrats have to hope that that those Republicans, when it comes time, are, are not going to be willing to kind of uh, vote yes on that. Do we have right. a sense, John, at all, of what the moderate makeup of the Kansas House might be? Are there votes that are pick-offable, pick if you will, for Democrats on this and other issues? Or... Is it a more conservative uh, house? There are there are fewer of them than there than there have been in the past, simply because uh, I mean the phenomenon was in, in August um, a number of moderate Republicans lost their races in primaries, and then uh, unlike what Democrats had hoped for, a number of those conservative candidates went yeah. on to win their their yeah. general election. So you will have a a a larger and more conservative Republican majority. All right, John Shorman, thank you so much for joining us, Colleen McCain-Nelson. Uh, you know, it looks like we'll have uh, stories to write in the weeks ahead, right? <laughs> the idea that we could all take the rest of the year off probably is not going to happen, <laughs> which we wouldn't want it any other way, of course. And Derek Donovan, my co-host and partner, thank you so much, as always, for being with us on the podcast. I'm Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board, and you have been on Deep Background. Deep Background.